Blog Talk Radio. Hello there, I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. Today we're going to be talking about speech intelligibility issues in toddlers. And as I'm listening to myself talk right now, I, you know, I've just been sick for <laughs> weeks. It feels like weeks and weeks, but for a couple of weeks now, which is why we haven't had the show. And I'm hearing right now some hyponasality, and I'm a little bit hoarse. And so I hope that we can continue the show. I thought it was a lot better than this. So. We're just going to get through it because I really, really, really want to talk today about specific tips for teaching toddlers new sounds, new speech patterns, and words. And this information is from my therapy manual that we released in the fall of 2018, Functional Phonology. And so if you're hearing things on the show today and you think, boy, what did she say? I wish I knew more about that. I wish I could get a better explanation for that or some more details. You can always get your hands on that book and read the written summary of this. But this is actually Chapter 5 from that therapy manual. And, it again, this show is specifically related to improving speech intelligibility in toddlers. So if you're a parent and that term is new to you, it just means how do we teach a kid to talk so that people understand what he's saying. And that intelligibility word is so important there. Even if a child is missing all the right sounds, we still can usually, using context, understand what they are trying to say. And so in no way, shape, or form do I want a parent or another professional, especially someone who's outside the field of speech-language pathology, to hear me do a show about intelligibility in toddlers and think that our goal is perfect adult-like speech for a two-year-old or even a three-year-old because that is unrealistic. (laughs) But there are so many children, and particularly those who have struggled with learning to talk at all, who do have severe issues when it comes to how well they are understood. And so that's what we're talking about here. And again, we're not talking about little developmental errors like a child who might, a toddler who's not pronouncing an R, who would say, you know, wabbit or wed for red. That is completely expected for a toddler. We're not talking about children who have difficulty when their toddlers saying multisyllabic words like refrigerator or uh, even something like basketball, those multisyllabic words and those more difficult uh, phonetic words with more difficult phonetic complexity are going to be difficult for children even who are typically developing. And that's just expected. I mean, we used to call that baby talk, but we still kind of call it that because kids do make errors as they're learning how to talk. And so, again, we're talking about toddlers who are who are falling so far outside the norm or who you know are purposely trying to talk who are intentional communicators who understand language who are very very social and so the the words that they're using are directed toward another person it's not just jargon or random babbling it's very very intentional but these are children who have are using sound substitutions or meaning one sound for another sound they're putting a t there when there should be a maybe a p there or children who are deleting sounds or completely leaving a sound off so instead of saying cookie they might say ooey 
And again, you might understand that when it's your own child or certainly speech pathologists and developmental interventionists and OTs who work with toddlers all the time. We do pretty good <laughs> about deciphering words when there are sounds missing or sounds substituted. But for unfamiliar listeners, it can be really, really parents when a child is mostly unintelligible. I mean, you know, especially with late talkers, when we wait so long to hear their first little words. And we are just so excited that they are finally moving along and trying to say something. And sometimes that excitement turns to disappointment pretty quickly when we realize, gosh, now he's talking, but I have no idea what he's trying to say. And so the whole book, the whole therapy manual, Functional Phenology, is written for families and for therapists, certainly, who work with uh, in early intervention programs and who work with toddlers and families. The whole book is written to kind of get everybody on the right track with what's normal for toddler speech and what can we expect, especially for toddlers who have had some developmental delays and who have struggled to get words going. So our kids that we call late talkers, when really there may be a better diagnosis, it could be kids who have autism, kids who have apraxia, which is a, a motor planning speech disorder, kids who have cerebral palsy, or again, kids who just have had that language delay that there's no real etiology or no real diagnosis that we've determined yet. You know, what can we expect with their speech intelligibility? What are some things that we can do that are realistic to help a child improve the way that he or she pronounces the word so that we can understand it better? And let me just say, too, uh, what I already said, we should expect toddlers to have some errors or some level of difficulty when they are learning to combine speech sounds. We all know children who were precious in the way that they <laughs> came up with ways to produce words. And those little errors are sometimes quite charming. And so, again, we don't want to be unrealistic in how we're thinking about speech intelligibility for toddlers. We do not want children to sound like little robots, and they are not going to sound like adults yet because that's just not how God made us. That's just not how we we uh, develop. And so, again, I want to kind of always keep that realistic perspective going when we are discussing uh, speech development particularly because it is a little trickier and again children who have been later talkers who did not produce their first words between 12 and 15 months who were on the later end of that who didn't really start to talk until after they were two or after they were three are going to struggle a little more with this and that's a little more expected because their systems were compromised in the first place, which is why they were late talkers. Now, I hope that that makes sense to you. As a parent, too, I don't want you to get your feelings hurt when you're hearing me say things like systems compromised or late developer or atypical development. It's not meant to be a black mark against a child or really denote any huge, you know, huge difference there. It's just how we talk about it and just how we label it. So if you're feeling sensitive about that, as you're, if you're a mama or a dad today listening, let me just put my arms around you and say, it's okay and it's all right to feel that way. And we are so sensitive, again, about our own babies. And sometimes we're so blinded by our love for them that we don't see things that other people see. And then when we start to realize that, again, the little layer of denial comes off when we get a little more uh, able to deal with the emotional and to think about it. But I've 
I've spoken with some moms lately that who, who just are so tender and who just, again, feel so just emotionally uh, stressed because of the differences that they're they're learning about their children. And again, it's so hurtful to them. And so if, if you're in that situation today, I just I just want to reach out to you and say it's okay. You know, things are going to get better. You won't always feel like this. You'll be you'll be able to handle that a little better. So if that's for you, I hope that you received that um, message today. And if it's not for you, let's just move on <laughs> and start talking about practical things that we can do to help toddlers learn how to pronounce words and, and use uh, use speech sounds more accurately. So in functional phonology, I really used a tagline that I uh, concocted in 2009 when I started, really before then, but when I did my Teach Me to Listen and Obey receptive language DVD series with how can we help parents learn how to cue a child to understand language. And so I came up with the line, tell him, show him, help him. And so this this kind of cueing also works for sounds because it's the same premise. Tell him means verbal cues so that a child can hear the new sound or the new word that you want him to say. Visual cues are helping a child see how that sound is made or how that word is produced. So giving him some kind of reference so that he can look at you and see what you're doing with your mouth. And then tactile cues, the uh, tell him, show him, help him. The help him part is something that we do physically or so, something that we help him do so that he can really feel how to produce the sound or produce the new word that we want him to use. Now, if you're a therapist, you already know and understand terms like verbal cues, visual cues, tactile cues, but this is usually really foreign to parents when we start talking with them about it. Now, that's not to say that parents aren't already cueing their children because they do. We all say to a child, let's say that he says uh, something like, you know, I want ooh for juice. We would say, oh, you mean juice. You mean, you want juice, and we are emphasizing the beginning and ending consonants there so that a child hears that he should be including more sounds on that word. And you don't have to be a speech therapist to do that. I mean, that's something that we as adults and moms and dads and even as a teenager, if you're if you babysat a lot, I'm sure that you did that just instinctively with the toddlers that you worked with. But it's really, really important that we help as therapists, that we help parents understand what they're already doing, first of all, so that they feel good about themselves because so many times parents of children who have special needs and developmental differences have taken a big hit to their self-esteem. And they have all this misplaced guilt that somehow they have contributed or worse caused this developmental difference with their children somehow at fault and it is all falls on their shoulders and so I think it's so important as a therapist in any field whatever we're working on with the family that we really validate parents when they are trying and when they are doing things right and so that we help them see 
one, that they've got a lot of misplaced guilt. And secondly, what they're already doing right. And the next reason we do that is so that they'll do more of it. Because anything that we're reinforced for, whether that's intrinsically something that we feel good about or externally, when someone tells us, hey, good job, we want to do it more. I mean, that's just natural. And so that's one thing that we need to do for parents is really, really, really help them feel good about what they're already doing right. Now, we're certainly going to give them additional things to do, and certainly when they're not doing things right. But lots of times cueing is something that you can, even a verbal cue, even if a parent says, uh, and again, I've given some examples already, but let's say that they're reading a book and the child says, oh, for book. Every time a parent says, oh, book, you want, let's read the book. If you can't find anything to praise a parent about, if they are correctly pronouncing the word, (laughs) you can say, do you know what you're doing? You are giving great verbal cues for how this child, how your child should be pronouncing this word. You are helping your child hear how to say this word correctly. And I just want to praise you for that. I just want to stop and make sure that you understand that you have taken the first step here to improve your child's intelligibility. Now, would the parent have done that anyway? Of course, you're going to say the word correctly. But sometimes as therapists, we have to dig deep to find something positive to talk to your parent about or something positive for us to think about, hey, that's a strength for a parent. Let's start with this. Let's build on this foundation. So that's certainly something that we can do and that we can recognize and make sure that we talk to parents about and say, hey, you realize when you're talking to them and you pronounce the word correctly, you've already started cueing him because you're giving that verbal cue. Now, occasionally we'll have parents who misarticulations are so cute and again I'm so guilty of that sometimes and I've already alluded to that when I call errors charming or precious or you know that's just how much I love babies and love toddlers and appreciate the uniqueness of each uh, child that we see or family that we work with but we can't really my point here is, is that you can't really pronounce a word incorrectly and and even when you think it's just as cute as it can be, because you really are reinforcing the error. So sometimes we have shocked parents about that too. And they'll end up calling, uh, like my little girl, and, and, you know, again, she's not so little anymore. She's about to be 23, and she's in grad school to be a speech pathologist herself. She used to call shampoo hair shampoo, which I just thought that was the funniest thing. And I reinforced that word way more than I should have because she called it that for a really long time. And so sometimes we have to sort of redirect parents and say, hey, you know, if our goal here is intelligible speech, let's not reinforce this error here. But that doesn't happen very much, only when, only occasionally, but I did want to mention that. All right, so let's really break this down. Let's talk about this specifically how visual, verbal, and tactile cues look when we are helping toddlers learn new speech sounds. And again, today we're not going to go through the whole list of what's typical and what's atypical for toddlers as far as speech sound acquisition. I said a little bit about that at the beginning. We know sounds like R and sounds like L and sounds like a consonant blends, like STR for street, or even um, other kinds of blends like BR for brown or BL for blue. Those are going to be more difficult, and children will struggle with that. Even, you know, kindergartners, first, second, third grade, some of those sounds really are that uh, later are just later to be acquired like that. So again, we're not going to review any of that information. You can find some of that 
those resources at Teach Me to Talk, which is my website, if you've just somehow stumbled on this show and don't even really know what you're listening to. <laughs> uh, you can find some of that at Teach Me to Talk. Lots of that information is included in the Functional Phenology book. And again, if you are a therapist and have really struggled with what's appropriate to work on with toddlers and what's not, Certainly, we get a lot of that information in our formal education programs in grad school, but sometimes, especially for switching populations, if we've worked with school-age children and now we're going to work with toddlers, or if we have been exclusively with toddlers and we have just focused on our own skill set with improving language, which is never a bad idea, by the way. But if we, have, if, if we haven't paid a lot of attention to speech sound development, all of a sudden you get a kid that you think, man, this language is moving along, but I've got to do something about this articulation. Let me just recommend functional phonology as an overall resource, not to take the place of any formal education or certainly not to be your end-all, be-all resource because it's not that. But it is a really super functional, practical resource to help you remember what's developmentally appropriate for children and again especially for kids who also have language delays as well as just uh, uh, it's a great idea book as far as this is the pattern that you need to work on and here's some activities that you can do and here's the word list and then you can take it from there and from I know all the time therapists will say to me you know I started with the activities in your book and then this kid just took off with kind of in his own direction and here's what I've done you know we started with with just the little games that you recommended and then oh my goodness I got so many great ideas just from what this child did or how this family modified this activity so again if you're really struggling with I'm not sure how to work on speech intelligibility um, functional phonology will really 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 help you get started with that and help you know what's appropriate and what's not and if you are a developmental therapist or an educator or an OT and listening to the show. And I know we have lots and lots of other uh, therapists who are not SLPs who listen because they need this information. It'll really, really help get you on track, again, to know what's appropriate and what's not. Now, I will always think that a speech-language pathologist is the best professional to work on speech intelligibility. Now, language, we can kind of go either, either way. I mean, all of us talk, so all of us, as far as language development and language facilitation, and lots of us get that even as educators and OTs and all of that. We, we, that, that information is just layered in your training when you get that. But as far as speech intelligibility goes, SLPs are the ones who get that training. And so if you have a kid, if you're a DI or an OT and have a kid who really is mostly unintelligible and you haven't referred to an SLP yet, I would just highly encourage you to do that because they are going to have some additional areas of expertise that it's going to make it a little bit easier for that child and that family and then they're not reinventing the wheel. You may be learning all of this brand new for the first time, but your SLP isn't and can probably make, even on a consultative basis, make fantastic recommendations for you for you to understand what's appropriate as far as speech sound development goes and then what's not. All right, so back to what we're really supposed to be talking about, verbal, visual, and tactile cues. So verbal cues. So tell him, of course, means that we're going to say the word or the sound that we want a child to imitate. Now let's talk about this word sound thing. Let's say that you have worked with a child or are working with a child. Who, who doesn't have very many consonants, A-E-I-O-U, and then those variations are our vowels. If you're a parent, you haven't thought about 
words like consonant and vowel in a long time. Consonants are the other letters in the alphabet. So let's say that you have a child who doesn't use very many consonants, and you are thinking, oh, that's it. That's what I need to do. I've got to teach him some new sounds so that he can say these words better. That is great. And lots of parents then will proceed to teach one sound at a time, and, and maybe not even necessarily linked to a word. You just think, he never says a sound with P that starts with a P. He never says a word that starts with a P. So I'm just going to teach him how to say the P sound. And so you do your best with P, P, P all day long, and he doesn't get it. A lot of times it's because we have extracted that sound from the word, and so it's not meaningful. And so when your child is looking at you like, I don't understand what you're trying to get me to do, he doesn't understand what you're trying to get him to do. That's real. And so it doesn't make sense to him. So you're always going to want to start with the real whole word rather than, again, pulling that out sound by sound. And, again, that is a little counterintuitive for some parents when they start to think about it because they think, well, sounds are the problem, so let me just teach them sounds. And they'll do things like get the flashcards out or get an, app, an alphabet app and start to go through that. And let me just discourage that. Let me just say that what we really should be doing is listening for when a child mispronounces a word, and then you try to figure out what he's doing there. Is he leaving the sound off, which is called an omission or deletion, or is it that he's using another sound for it? But before we try anything else, we should cue the entire word. So let's say that we have a child who says, ah, for ball. And again, let's just talk about this from a developmental perspective. We've already said that L is a later developing consonant. Lots of children master that by four. But if we're talking about a two-year-old here, again, who's also been a late talker, we're not going to worry about that L on the end of that word. Um, and not only because it's not that, because L is a later developing consonant, but also because it's a final consonant. And lots of children don't master including those ending consonant sounds or words that end in a consonant until they're closer to three. And so, again, if we're talking about, you know, let's just say we have a 24-month-old who's saying, ah, for ball here. We're not going to worry about the L, but we would think, oh, boy, he should be saying the B sound there. Don't start, though, by teaching the B sound. And I'm trying not to pronounce it with a vowel because that's what we do a lot, too. We'll say, say Say ball. Tell me ba, ba, ba. And your your uh and your ah for ball are different there. And so we've already kind of messed it up because we've interjected a vowel sound that's not accurate. And so don't don't even do it that way. Again, I would really, really encourage you at the beginning just to model the correct word. You mean ball. You want the ball. You have to tell me ball. Did you hear me say it? Say ball. And so by doing that, you really are cueing the entire word. And so lots of times, again, we, before we just inadvertently by mistake are modeling an error for a child. The, the example that I use all the time when I teach this in a course with early speech language development, taking theory to the floor or talk about it live or whatever, even when I'm talking to your parent about it, I'll, I'll use the word like go. I'll say, let's say that a child isn't saying go, isn't producing the G in go. And so what do we do? We'll model. We'll say, say go, 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 go. 
And so, again, by that example, can't you see how we've <laughs> messed it up more? We've even muddied it more because we, we inserted an incorrect vowel there. We, we were saying, uh, instead of, oh, for go. And so that's a good way to kind of explain it to parents. If you're a therapist and you, you hear a parent really trying to kind of overcue. And let me just say, sometimes parents do that to impress the speech therapist. And so they think, oh, I don't want her to think this is false, and I want her to know that I'm really, really working with my child here. And so and so they'll almost overdo it. They'll in front of you to gain your admiration and your respect. And so a lot of times when I see that happening, I say to moms, man, you are trying so hard. You are doing such a good job trying so hard. But let me teach you a little bit better way to do it. And then talk about the vowel thing. And most of the time parents are doing that well, all the time because they just don't know any better. And they think that they're they think that they're keeping it the right way. So I say to parents, let's just tweak that a little bit. And this is how speech therapists would do it. And they like that. They like that that little redirection there. So don't be afraid about doing that. And especially if you're a new therapist or if you are a little shyer in your personality or you're just so respectful of the families that you're working with that you think, I don't really want to try to change anything that they're doing or I don't want to tell them they're doing anything wrong and I want to keep this as positive as possible. Sometimes you just have to dive in there and say, let me teach you a better way so that parents can change it. And I always think anything that I'm teaching a parent to benefit the child, even if at the beginning it feels a little bit uncomfortable for me, or even if I think, oh, I'm stepping on this mom's toes a little bit, I, I know this might be a little bit upsetting for her. I always think in the long run, having this more difficult conversation or doing something that's more uncomfortable for me is going to benefit this child in the long run, so I'm going to go ahead and make myself do this right now, even if, again, it feels a little bit uncomfortable for me or the parent. And every time, if you're a new therapist, you'll get a lot more comfortable with talking with parents and figure out what to say that's less offensive <laughs> and more supportive so that parents take your advice and your recommendations with the spirit in which it's offered, which is always to be helpful, still respectful, still uh, supportive, still positive, but at the same time, we do have to give parents really specific things that we want them to do differently. And, you know, honestly, a lot of times parents, uh, again, welcome that much more than we think that they're going to. I think sometimes in our education programs now or in things that we read or especially when we're reading about coaching, gosh, we just other way that we're we're scared or intimidated and feel like we should never tell a parent, hey, there's a better way to do what you're doing. And so we hold off on saying that when really we should just jump in there and say, let, let, me, let me teach you something else here. Let's change this a little bit. Let's tweak it because then everything you do is going to be much more effective for your child. And I promise parents always take that. You know, I've never had a parent get offended with anything like that. And they always take that, again, in the spirit in which it's offered. So if you are doing it without being judgmental and condemning or overcorrective, they'll take it that way. So just, again, a little heads up for, for therapists there. All right, so we already talked about with verbal cues that we're going to cue the whole word first before we do anything else. And so... There are other, before we move on with exactly how we'll do this hierarchy, let's talk about the other kinds of verbal cues because sometimes we will have to ratchet it up a little bit and make it a little bit more specific. Verbal cues also include specific instructions for how to make a sound. So we might say things to a child like, 
oh, put your lips together, like we were giving that example before with the word ball. And so if we have a child who's leaving off the B there and he's just saying ah for ball, we might say, oh, get your lips together. or And that would be a verbal cue or something like feedback. That would be something before the child is going to say the word. But we also give verbal cues after a child has attempted the sound. So we might say things like, I saw your lips together. Yay. Or something like, let's say a child has a vowel error, and they're using an uh, a really neutral vowel for an E, a long E. And so instead of saying teeth, the child says tongue or something like that. And so we might say, oh, you know, let me see your teeth. Or I saw your teeth when you were saying that. I saw that. That was so good. So verbal cues also include things like that. Verbal cues are also the longer and more descriptive explanations that we give. And one of the patterns that we work on first with toddlers when they are not, when they are really highly unintelligible, is making sure that they have included all the syllables in a word. And so we call that syllableness. And so the example in functional phonology is one that, gosh, I have heard children and use this with parents a lot. Let's say that a child is trying to say a word like yogurt. And let's say he just says yo or o oh for yogurt. And so a verbal cue for him might be, Yogurt has two parts. Listen, yogurt, yogurt. And so we, you know, even something like, you know, we say two parts when we say that word. Or um, you're probably going to do something along with that, like clapping. And that would be more a tactile cue if we're getting the child to clap with us to hear both parts of that word. But my point is a verbal cue also includes those explanations and those descriptions with what we want children to do. And one more really effective verbal cue that we use with toddlers is giving each sound a name that describes how the sound is made. And this is really a lot easier with consonants. And, I, you know, again, this is not – this information is pretty – widely used with speech pathologists, we all call an S a sound, a snake sound, because that's the hiss that snakes make, and we all do that. But if you if you need a list of those kinds of verbal cues, you can certainly get that from functional phonology, but a good one is a P. We call that a popper sound, because it sounds like you're popping your lips when you say P. A G, a G, is a throaty sound since that's made in your throat. And so lots of times if you pair this term when you were teaching a child a new sound, it gives them another representation or a better description of how they are to, how they can correctly produce that sound. And another benefit for doing it this way is you won't always have to model the sound. And so it's just a higher level of cueing. So you might say things like, you know, where's your snake sound? Or, oh, I didn't hear your popper sound. Put your popper on there. And again, it's just a little higher level of cueing. The child has to work a little bit harder than that direct imitation that we might give him. Now, let me just say, sometimes that's really confusing for children, especially those, those children who have had receptive language delays. So when we are saying, Make your popper sound, and they have no idea what you're talking about, even though you have taught it like that. You've said, it's our popper sound. It's a popper. Listen to my popper. Did you hear my popper? Even though you have done your best job to link those names, sometimes children still have a really difficult time learning that. And I've had kids with perceptive language delays that I've, I've gotten to the point that I feel like, okay, we're almost ready to work on articulation here. And then we get to this level, and then I realize, man, he cannot link 
these what I think are these cute little names that I've given him these sounds so that he can imitate that and I'll just think receptively he's not ready for that. Cognitively he's not ready for that. This does not make sense to him yet. So use your own judgment with those kinds of things. And let me just put in another plug here. You really aren't going to work on lots of speech intelligibility with a child who's still struggling with language. And so if you have children who are still not really following commands, please tell me that we're not going to work on articulation or speech intelligibility with a lot of children who don't know body parts. And so if you're saying put your lips together and they have no idea what lips are, you know, we're working on the wrong goal there. <laughs> we've got to teach words. We've got to teach what those words mean before we have any shot of being able to really change how they produce a word. And so that kind of goes back to information that's at the very beginning of functional phonology. And we've talked about this on the show. I, I believe we've talked about it even in the fall when I was getting ready to release the book and it was kind of a promo for the book. But there are some criteria that children meet should meet before we know that it's appropriate to work on speech intelligibility with them. And again, I'm not going to repeat that information. You can go back and find the show to scroll through. Or, and I'm sorry, I don't have that show name right here, but even better, get the book so that you can look at that. And there's a really good checklist in there that lists all of that criteria so that you can see. You know, is, and help you make that clinical decision. Is this child ready to work on speech intelligibility as a major part of his therapy program or not? Should we wait a little while and work on other things? And so receptive language is one of those things. If he doesn't understand words like tongue and teeth and lips and, and mouth, no way is he ready to work on speech intelligibility when you're going to give really specific cues. And you certainly can model the word and model and the great news is lots of toddlers will but at the same time if you really need to work on articulation with more intensity with a little more focus kids have to know their receptive language has to be moving along because they have to understand body parts all right that was visual cues or that was verbal cues let's move on to visual cues visual cues mean that you'll provide Actions like pointing and directing his attention to you and specifically your mouth as you produce a sound so that the child can see how to produce that sound. And so the very best way to provide a visual cue to a toddler for anything is proximity. And what do I mean by that? That means you get close to him so that he's more likely to look at your face and you place yourself within his line of vision. So if he is engaged in something down on the floor, let's say he's sitting on the floor playing with potato heads, you're going to have to get right down there with him. He may not even look up at you to see you doing all of your pointing and all the things we do to make sure that he's looking at our mouths. You know, maybe putting your hands beside your mouth, like cupping your hands there. He's not going to notice you and even see those visual cues if you don't do something to get yourself right there in his line of vision. So one of the things that I talk about all the time, whether we're talking about working on speech or working on language or working on a social skill like joint attention or eye contact, is putting a child in a position where he is more likely to look at my face. So many, many times I am I just try to get right down there with him, which means, you know, I'm contorting my 52-year-old body in all kinds of ways that it no longer wants to move, or I'm putting the child in a position so that he can really look at me more easily. So he might be on sitting on a couch or on a low table and I'm on the floor, or maybe if he'll take it and not if he can tolerate a high chair and it's fine with him, or even a little 
you know, a little chair, a little beanbag chair or just a toddler-sized chair where he's right there and I'm on the floor. And, again, that puts us at face-to-face level, eye-to-eye level, so that he can see my face. So think about that. Think about what can I do to help a child be able to look at me, see me more clearly, and without constantly having to say, look at me, look at my face, watch me. You know, that gets so obnoxious with children. And I, even when parents do it or if, when I work with another therapist and they do it, or even when I go back and watch videos of me, <laughs> I'll think, oh, no, that was terrible. No wonder he didn't look at me because I wore it out. It's always better to give a child a reason to look at you, meaning that you are fun and you are engaging and your facial expressions are cool to look at. Always give them that kind of reason rather than that verbal directive, look at me, look at me, look at me. All right, so those were verbal cues or visual cues. Now we're going to move on to tactile cues. This is the helping him part, and that means that you'll provide physical assistance to help a child learn to produce the sound. And so you'll touch his mouth to shape the sound and help him feel how that sound is produced. Now there are formal and informal ways to do this. The formal way is called PROMPT. <laughs> it stands for Props for Restructuring Oral Muscular muscular phonetic targets. And so I don't do a lot of prompts because I primarily work with toddlers and primarily work with children that are hard unless I just happen to uh, you know, see them. They're just friends of children that I see or children that are local here. But mostly when I do consultative things, it's because the other speech pathologists are not making progress and parents are seeking additional ideas. And so more often than not, that means that there's some sensory issues or there are some behavioral concerns or there are some other more significant cognitive issues that are going on. And let me just say, when children have those or all three of those issues, they don't like for their faces to be touched. And so I'm not a prompt trained therapist because I just feel like the population of children that I work with, uh, I I just don't really have that skill set. And I I do all of my tactile cues and physical cues with more informal methods that we'll talk about. And lots of speech pathologists, especially those of us who specialize in toddlers and preschoolers, aren't prompt trained. And so if you're listening to uh, this and you're thinking, my child has apraxia and I've Googled it and I know that I have to have him in prompt or he's not going to make any progress at all. And you think I'm only going to work with a therapist who is prompt trained, you may be missing out on a wonderful experience with a wonderful speech language pathologist who has not needed that skill to be highly successful in helping children improve speech intelligibility. So don't always get railroaded by something that you read like that, thinking that unless this therapist does it this way, that it's wrong, because that's not true. And so let me just say, too, if I worked with school-age children, or if I worked with children, if I exclusively worked with preschoolers and exclusively worked with children with a apraxia who were super difficult to understand or severe phonological disorders, I probably would take the prompt course. So it's not bad either if you're a parent listening to this. But I just kind of want to go both ways with that. There are formal ways and informal ways to cue that. And again, prompt is a really specific hands-on cueing system with lots of touching in and around a child's mouth. And if you feel like your child benefits from that and needs that, certainly seek out a therapist who's prompt trained. But don't throw the rest of us under the bus <laughs> because we're not. We haven't uh, done that training because lots of times we don't need it. We can accomplish the same kinds of things with really informal touch cues. And again, that would be 
um, just touching a child's mouth to help them um, maybe get their lips closed if we're working on bilabial sound, spread a little bit if we're working on a different vowel sound and they tend to have more of a closed mouth posture. But let me give you some cues that will make this easier because so many children are resistant to touch cues around their mouths for a long, long time. And so let me just say too, before we do this or when we continue to do these kind of informal touch cues, any kind of negativity or irritation or frustration or physical roughness on your part will make that worse with a child, especially one who's already hinted that he may not be able to tolerate that or like that. And so you've got to be super happy when you're doing this. And I just, I back off. If I have a child who starts to be real negative about it, and doesn't want me to touch his face, I don't because I don't want to ruin that relationship with that child. And I value communication way above intelligibility. And so if I have a kid at two or at, at you know, 30 months or three or three and a half who still doesn't really, really like those and who kind of shuts down or gets super negative or tries to, you know, smack me when I'm doing those kinds of things, I take that as my cue to back off and help get his body ready for those kinds of cues and help him move along just emotionally with me. He has to be more comfortable with me and he has to like that better. And so sometimes these kinds of cues are even better coming from mom. So as a therapist, you may be able to teach mom or dad or brother or sister ways to use these kinds of touch cues to a child's face and the child would handle it a lot better than if you were doing it yourself. So let me just talk about two. I mentioned this. Sometimes we have to get children, when they're really, really sensitive to touch, we have to really address that hypersensitivity and kind of normalize how they receive that incoming input before we're able to do these things. Now, the best recommendation is always work with an OT with this, with an occupational therapist, but sometimes that's not practical and we don't have, families don't have access to that, whether they can't pay for it or they don't have that coverage with their insurance or maybe you're in an early intervention system that's really judicious about making additional referrals and you can't, can you do in the meantime? You know, think about these kinds of strategies. Deep pressure is always more acceptable to those kinds of children who were hypersensitive than light touch. So sometimes as you touch a child's mouth, you certainly don't want to be too too aggressive, but at the same time you can't be so firm or so gentle that you tickle or irritate a child. You just you're setting them off more. So really strike that happy medium balance there with how you're touching a child. And again, if you're touching him and he shirks back or gets mad or lashes out at you, you know, think, well, that was too firm or that was too gentle. I need to I need to make it a little more intentional here. He needs to really understand what I'm doing. And you also want to, again, get their whole little bodies ready. So lots of physical activity, running, jumping, bouncing, those kinds of things certainly make toddlers to have sensory regulatory issues more receptive to touching their mouth. Sometimes it's just that they need a little more stimulation in their uh, mouth to begin with. So lots of times these kids also have eating issues and maybe self-limit their own diets. They, they don't eat a lot of crunchy foods. They really only eat foods that are uh, almost pureed. So um, lots of times you'll, you'll see that, that they've got that sensitivity kind of going too. 
And so they may even resist brushing their teeth or having their faces washed. And so you'll you'll know that you're going to have some more work to do just from a sensory perspective to get a child to tolerate any kind of touch around his face before you go in there trying to get touch him to help him get a speech sound produced correctly. And again, an OT will really, really help you identify those children and help um, help get that going too. All right, so let's talk about how we sequence these kinds of cues, verbal, visual, and tactile cues for maximum progress with toddlers. We always want to think about providing the least amount of assistance as possible so that the child moves toward the correct word or sound but does not become overly dependent on our cues. And this holds true whether we're teaching signs or using a picture system or just talking about language here, but it really applies to these speech sounds too. And so we really need to provide less cueing at the beginning to see if it'll work because then you're gonna, he's going to be closer to producing the sound independently. So you don't want to go in there all gangbusters with tactile cues for every single sound that he mispronounces right away. We're going to start with the lowest level of cueing, which would just be the verbal cues that we've already talked about. So remember we already talked about cueing the whole word first that we want the child to use. And so you're going to want to use a few whole word models. And again, I use the three to five time guidelines. So I want to make sure that I'm saying the word correctly that I want him to say three to five times before I expect him to produce that too. And so that visual cueing really, really helps. But if a child's sound system isn't maturing or kicking in and improving with, with those whole word cues, you want to bump it up a little bit and, and move that up to some visual cues. And let me say with visual cues, I forgot to say, one important cue is children usually, their eyes follow their hands. And so when I'm having a hard time getting a child to look at me, and I've already taken care of the proximity piece. I'm close. I'm right there. A lot of times, instead of taking his face and turning his face toward me, which is instinctively what parents want to do, you know, they want to take that their child's little head and turn it, take a child's hands and place his hands on your face, on your cheeks, one on each side of your face, and you, I mean, 99% of the time, their eyes follow their hands. And so they are automatically going to be tuned into your face. And then you can really provide those visual cues where they are looking at how you produce those sounds. And so that's kind of the next thing that I try, especially when I'm modeling the sound in isolation or by itself. Let's say that we're working on, especially sound that a child can see you produce like a P, a B, or an M. I want that child really, really looking at me. So those visual cues are super important. And then we move to those tactile cues last. And again, we've talked about why it's because children, and especially toddlers with sensory issues, will resist those kinds of cues. So you want to really keep those cues, uh, make sure that you need them so that you're not making a little one mad by doing something that he or she finds uh, aversive from the beginning. So be sure that you're kind of saving that. And again, if we've sort of flown through all of this, but if you'll get the book, and read chapter five there, it'll make a lot more sense to you. But I'm hoping that this gets you going in the right direction. And especially if you're a therapist, think about when you're thinking about cueing a child and teaching a parent how to cue a child, tell them, show them, help them is a great way to explain those 
verbal, visual, and tactile cues to parents. All right, that's all for today. I'm about out of voice. I'm, I think laryngitis is just looming on the horizon for me. So that is it for this speech therapist for today. Uh, thanks so much for listening, and I hope you have a great week. Bye-bye.